welcome to a Podstemology. You know what I like a lot more than materialistic things? Knowledge. What is this? It's a podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of a Podstemology, and especially warm welcome to any new listeners. This week's guest is Rachel Minger, an assistant professor of economics at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and something of a minor, dare I say major, celebrity of econ Twitter. She's also a fellow Aussie, so even if you don't appreciate the episode, your eardrums will doubtless revel in our Antipodean accents. Rachel is something of a Bayes Bay, that's Thomas Bayes, the statistician, and our conversation is mostly about the associated dark art of conjuring facts from data, especially in economics. We talk a lot about causal inference, as almost all economists do these days, and why it's important, but also why it might be slowly suffocating the field. What other sorts of approaches to the generation of knowledge should we take in economics and social science more broadly? And what institutional reforms to economics might ensure that it stays fresh and relevant? Stay on the line to find out. Apodstemology. Hello everyone, welcome Rachel and Mia to the show. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yes, that is exactly right. It is confusing, uh, okay. but it is Mega. Yes. What's the worst one that you've ever gotten? Um, no, usually people say Ma, but the worst one is Mija, yeah. which is understandable, but it's Mega. Yeah, it's a bastardized, like, attempted anglicization of an Irish name, Okay, uh, as many Irish families did. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, we are. it's a very special occasion. It's after Freedom Day in scare quotes, um, in London. So we're actually coming to you live from the studio, being um, my couch. We've had a few beers. Um, so we're going to tell you what we really think today. Um, and what better way to start with our raw opinions than, um, Rachel, why don't you tell us a bit about your research? Sure. So uh, I work at the intersection of applied econometrics and development economics. Um, so I'm really interested in how we can do more to understand both like the causes of poverty on a global level, but also like interventions that might be able to alleviate poverty uh, at various different levels. And so that involves a lot of impact evaluation. And my work is really more about trying to see if we could do more with the data that we have on impact evaluations, Mm -hmm. Uh, both in the sense of like trying to aggregate the evidence that we have in a sensible way to start looking at heterogeneity across settings um, Mm -hmm. But also to start thinking about, like, you know, whether the type of statistics that we're routinely doing in economics are actually delivering the kind of understanding that we want to have of these Mm -hmm. contexts. And I think there's just a lot missing if we think about how economics research in development is used to make decisions or to make claims about the world Mm -hmm. and what we actually do in our analysis. There's a lot of gaps. Um, and I'm really just very interested in methodology and mm-hmm. those gaps are often methodological. And so I think that's just a lot of exciting work to yeah, do yeah. there uh, in economics. Okay, sweet. So can you give us like some example from your recent publications about the kind of work you do? Sure. So like a really common thing that you would see in economics papers, um, like from like the most technical kind of seminar to, you know, a newspaper article about a finding is you would say like, 
you know, so we did this study, maybe it's a super rigorous study, it's like a randomized trial. Um, and, you know, so we randomly gave half of these villages, say, access to microcredit or half of these people, you know, a financial literacy program or some kind of education intervention or something like that. Uh, and then we were able to track what happens to them. And we know that, you know, whatever happens most likely caused by this program that we put because they're not selecting into it. And so we have whatever outcome we have. And then our conclusion is like, well, therefore, this program has this effect on people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've gone from, you know, a finding on a particular sample uh, that is to some extent representative of a population of people. But we're just extrapolating in this wild way beyond mm-hmm. any kind of sensible notion of a population that like a statistical theory would actually support you extrapolating. Mm-hmm. After evaluating millions of pieces of data in the blink of an eye, the Gambletron 2000 says the winner is Cincinnati by 200 points. Buy you, worthless hunk of junk. People want to do that, and I think it's reasonable to want to do that because, like, the discipline of economics or, like, social science in general mm-hmm. is underpinned by this idea that, you know, microcredit has some kind of core mechanism that is how it, quote-unquote, works. Mm-hmm. So you want to extrapolate. But actually, the stats that we're doing are not designed for that kind of extrapolation. Mm-hmm. So um, I do a lot of work, and, and recent work that I've done actually is focused on microcredit, looking at different randomized trials of microcredit in different settings, and actually quantifying stuff as basic as like, what's the actual variation in the treatment effects of microcredit across mm-hmm. different settings? Yeah. It's not a trivial question because there's also sampling variation in the studies. Mm-hmm. So you need to decouple the sampling variation from the real variation. And mm-hmm. that's just challenging to do statistically. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that in the case of microcredit, there's much less variation than there appears to be because mm-hmm. there's a lot of sampling variation in these right. studies. Okay. So actually like microcredit pretty uniformly doesn't do all that much very exciting unfortunately mm-hmm. like there's some nuance on that but like you know this is the kind of claim that people want to make about things like microcredit does it work does it not work mm-hmm. and you know you really have to start quantifying heterogeneity across contexts to even begin to grapple with that uh, mm-hmm. and so you know just like even basic stuff like that is we're still working on in economics yeah right okay cool very cool very cool I really want to keep this conversation high level, okay. but I also think that probably for some people, we should probably explain what an RCT is um, and what uh, what like cause identification is because we're going to be talking about it heaps. Um, so I guess, can you give us a, a summary of, of what causal inference is about and why randomized controlled trials are like good for it? Sure, totally. So mm-hmm. this is like a big kind of revolution that happened in, in applied microeconomics. So mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we think about studying, let's think about the Grameen Bank, right? Mm-hmm. So Muhammad Yunus started lending money to people and, you know, then he said that the people that he lent money to uh, had these really fantastic outcomes and he attributed that to the fact that he lent them money. But, of mm-hmm. course, he didn't just randomly decide to lend people money. There's reasons, whether he's conscious of them or not, why he chose certain people or why certain people maybe approached him. So Mm -hmm. those sorts of problems uh, are classically or technically referred to as selection bias problems Mm -hmm. Um, because 
the intervention that we're looking at is is uh, chosen by certain people, either the people receiving it or the people giving it out, mm-hmm. to be given to certain groups and not others. Yeah. And there may be systematic differences in those groups already that would cause different outcomes, even mm-hmm. if there weren't this intervention. So a randomized controlled trial is a type of uh, methodology where indeed you fully randomly assign uh, some portion of a group of people who may be able to receive this intervention, uh, you give it randomly to half of them or some some portion of them, uh, and then you track what happens to them. And you know that there's no other, in expectation, there's no other systematic difference between those two groups. Um, and so that allows you to uh, attribute, uh, with some sort of technical caveats, broadly speaking, it allows you to attribute any change you see between these two groups uh, to the intervention or the mm-hmm. treatment that was given to them because ex ante, there is no systematic difference that we know of between mm-hmm. the two groups. Immigrants, I knew it was them. Even when it was the bears, I knew it was them. Okay, very good. So and then I guess that brings us to our kind of big question for um, this episode, which is like, what do you see as the role of statistics in social science? Yeah, it's really, I mean, I think that role is evolving. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, you know, I really see statistics as, like, the way that we construct knowledge in the social sciences mm-hmm. because we're trying to learn about the world and we're trying to learn about the data, you know, that comes out of the world. And, and interpreting that at all is a methodological question and you need mm-hmm. frameworks on that. Um, so, I mean... At the moment, there's, I guess there's a lot of different ideas about what that should be and how, how that should be done. So I don't know that, like, my view of that is probably, like, kind of unusual. Sure. Um, but, like, I think, you know, statistics always has in mind, like, a, a question or a decision. So there's no, like, quote-unquote, objectively correct method to apply mm-hmm. uh, in any situation. Uh, and there's always costs and benefits of any statistical procedure you could design or imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a question of like, what is discerning for yourself as a social scientist? Like, what is the question I'm really interested in? Mm-hmm. That would determine what kind of stats I need to do. Um, and, you know, we may need to develop new stats if we need to ask new questions, which I think we often do need to do. And that mm-hmm. should be the role. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I think in many cases, the actual role of statistics in social science is like as a hurdle that people feel like they need to jump over okay. to make like an idea that they already believe is true, seem like quote unquote rigorous or yeah, prove it yeah. in some way. And I think that's like, unfortunately, the role that it does sometimes play as well. Mm-hmm. So you said that uh, we've got to think about what sort of question are we trying to answer and what kind of role can statistics play in that? So what are what's some of the questions in this spectrum so or like how can statistics manifest in different ways too great exactly so like um let's think about like a classic situation where you've got a bunch of like villages that received let's say microcredit because that's something mm-hmm. i just work on a lot um and then a bunch of villages um you know and let's say this is in ethiopia because that's mm-hmm. where one of the trials was done um and so you know you what you really want to know is whether microcredit improves people's lives. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's like impossible to measure. You know about that. Like, yeah. <laughs> how, you know, is life good 
that's just you know there's just no economist that mm-hmm. is would dare to attempt to measure that so yeah. uh uh except for you so that's very difficult all right but even if you narrow it down and you say okay all i care about is like um business profits mm-hmm. right so like people in these villages run businesses um, Muhammad Yunus is saying that if we give them these loans, they can expand their businesses, they'll be more profitable. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. All right. So the classic statistical framework that you would bring to that, if you weren't thinking about what the question is, mm-hmm. you would say, I'm supposed to measure the impact on business profits. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I'll do is uh, I'll compute the average in the two groups. So I'll look at the mm-hmm. average profit in the group that got microcredit, that's the treatment group, and I'll look at the average profit in the control group, and I'll look at the difference. And then I'll say, well, that's the average treatment effect of microcredit, and that's the number that I care about. Mm -hmm. But actually, like, you know, if you just make one person in that set of treated villages Mm -hmm. mega, mega wealthy, you will have a ginormous average treatment effect. Mm -hmm. That's probably not what you actually were hoping for. Right. If you make one person mega, mega wealthy and everybody else stays the same, you massively increase the inequality in the villages and you're not like raising everybody's living mm, standards. It's not the development. Exactly. Yeah. So you're not like when we actually think about development, we have a notion of like communities getting more resources, mm. like groups of people doing better overall, not one multi-billionaire living in a village in Zambia. Mm-hmm. Right. So. If that's what you care about, you can't look at an average, mm-hmm. right? Because an average doesn't distinguish between everybody getting X amount more and one multi-billionaire getting everybody's X. Yeah. So if you, there are statistical methods that allow you to look at that. So like uh, some follow-up work that I did to my first microcredit paper was saying like, let's look at the way that the shape of the profit distribution changes mm-hmm. when you introduce microcredit. Uh, so not just looking at the average, but looking mm-hmm. at the entire shape. Okay. Um, and actually, we could see that there are some there are small positive average effects of microcredit. They're very noisy. They're very small. Yeah. But they are composed of a heterogeneous effect on the distribution, where it's zero almost everywhere, and then mm-hmm. in the tail, there's a noisy large positive effect. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it looks more like, to the extent that anything happens in microcredit, it's mm-hmm. like some guy is getting kicked up into the tail of yeah. making a lot more profit. Maybe right. it's hard to do inference right. there. Um, actually, it's not that dissimilar to what we think capital markets do in developed countries. Yeah. Some person wins big. It's hard mm-hmm. to do inference because those are rare events. Yeah. But for most people, it doesn't benefit them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you think about the right question, it's very obvious you need to do something like this. You just mm-hmm. say, okay, I actually was thinking about everybody kind of doing better. So I need to look at kind of the distribution of this group's outcomes, mm-hmm. um, you know, not just the average. But if you just think about, like, what was I taught to do in stats class, you're mm-hmm. taught to compare differences in averages. But that doesn't mm-hmm. correspond to the question you actually care about. Oh, people can come up with statistics to prove anything, can't. 40% of all people know that. That also leads well into my next question, because you brought up stats class, which <laughs> I guess alludes to kind of, like, what, what the basic skills are that we learn and that sort of thing. So when you first started talking about the role of statistics in social science, you said that this is sort of evolving. Mm. So where can you give us like a brief history of it? So where do you yeah. think it started? Where's it going? That sort of thing. Well, it's hard. Okay, so it's hard for me to speak broadly to social science because I'm much more mm. well, you know, based in economics. economics yeah. yeah. So even that, I think it's difficult. Like statistics itself has got such an interesting 
history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's so, so statistics and econometrics were kind of one discipline ish until about 1950. Mm-hmm. So before 1950, there were both Bayesian and frequentist statisticians Mm -hmm. um and at that point it was just very difficult to do bayesian stats um Mm -hmm. because you have to do a lot of math with these like distributions and like computing posterior distributions from you know it's just very complicated to do if you don't have a computer i'm afraid we need to use math so at that time the frequentist methods of Fisher, so the p-value and Neyman and Pearson, so null mm-hmm. hypothesis testing, yeah. were much more dominant because you don't need a computer to sure. implement those things. They're very simple, and they're based Still on... Still pretty arduous. Yeah, yeah, I mean, compared to, yes, yeah. compared to Bayesian uh, modeling, yeah. like, those are much more simple methods. And sure. So those were sort of used, um, and then econometrics and stats kind of split off from each other in, around the kind of... World War II, Cold War era. Okay. Um, and at that point, actually, stats started to become somewhat more Bayesian. Yeah. Uh, so, like, intelligence departments uh, from that point onwards were using Bayesian statistics. Like, mm-hmm. Alan Turing used, like, a proto-Bayesian computing mm-hmm. methodology. Um, but econometrics remained pretty frequentist and was focused on other questions. Okay. Um, and so kind of what happened since then is that, that the computing revolution happened and now there's like a big resurgence in Bayesian methodology in mm-hmm. stats that hasn't really made its way over to econometrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we are still broadly speaking in a mode where we're doing t-tests looking at p-values like comparing differences in means Mm -hmm. um and you know that's sort of you know of course it doesn't it's not all like that but that's kind of broadly speaking where we're at and and there is yeah i think there's a now quite a big gap between formal stats and then econometrics uh and then of course even an additional gap between like formal econometrics and what people actually do in practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, there's just a lot of different, I don't know how to give like a good historical yeah, overview. Right. Yeah. So, so what is the difference between Bayesianism and frequentism? Yeah, so it's tough. It's tough <laughs> to kind of, you know, and people have such different um, backgrounds in this. But mm-hmm. like, so, like, hmm. No matter what I say, someone's going to get someone's mad at me. Spicy, yeah, yeah, someone's okay. going to be mad. Um, actually. Um, but I think, like, broadly speaking, uh, frequentist stats is based on conceiving of probability as a long-run frequency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we get uh, a given data sample from a population or whatever, we just get this data sample, um, the way that we quantify our uncertainty is we ask, like, a hypothetical question about... Um, if I were to get another random sample from this population, what would I see? What would I see, you know, under different circumstances? So, um, you know, if the world is really like this, if I did this repeated sampling, I would see, Mm -hmm. you know, outcome A. If the world was really this other way, if I did repeated sampling, I would see outcome B. Mm -hmm. And it uses that kind of logic um, to sort of quantify uncertainty. Uh, So So if I... If I'm flipping a coin and it's an even coin, then I would expect it to come out 50-50. Exactly. If I flipped it 100 times, Perfect. but if it's weighted, then I'd expect it to be 75% heads or Perfect. something. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Right. No, that's excellent. 
that's exactly right. Um, so Bayesian statistics, on the other hand, is much more focused on a more generalized notion of probability mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily rely on long-run frequency. So if you say, like, what's the probability it's going to rain today? Yeah. Well, today only happens once. Yeah. So, or Donald Trump's election. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Right? So there's only one time, like, or two times or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not enough. Um, yeah. But yet, yet we want to use probability to mm-hmm. describe our uncertainty around events that only occur once. Yeah. Um, and uh, Bayesian statistics uh, offers a way to, instead of saying, you know, if the coin was an even coin, a fair coin, then mm-hmm. I would expect to see this type of data. If it's weighted positively, I expect to see this type mm-hmm. of data. Instead, we would say, given the data that we have from the world that we're in, now what do we think the probability is that the coin is even? Yeah. Uh, you know, what's, you know, given what I see in the atmospheric readings today, Mm-hmm. Now, what do I think the probability is that the underlying fundamental is it's about to rain? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to saying, like, one day that it rains, here's what the, the atmospheric readings looks like on days that it doesn't rain. Okay. So it's instead of asking, you know, given what the situation could be, what's the data that I could see? You mm-hmm. say, given the data I did see, yeah. what could the situation be? Okay. So it's that reverse conditioning. So that's actually formally the correct object in some sense Mm -hmm. like if you're trying to make inference about the world you're making inference about this thing you don't see conditional Mm -hmm. on the data which you do see by Mm -hmm. definition yeah uh so in some sense that's the correct object the posterior Mm -hmm. probability posterior being given after i see the data Mm -hmm. the difficulty is that to compute that object uh you can't just have the data you also need uh, prior probability. Mm. Uh, you need information outside the sample that you have yeah. about these the relative likelihood of these states of the world. Um, because you know that the information you're getting now is mm. occurring in a broader context. Did you know that disco record sales were up 400% for the year ending 1976? If these trends continue, hey! That's kind of the methodological difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, if you were to ask, say, Michael Betancourt, who's a much more technical statistician mm-hmm. than me, he would say a Bayesian is somebody that uses the language of probability to quantify uncertainty. Okay. Yeah. So formally, exactly. So yeah. formally speaking, uh, frequentists don't do that because they never put, say, a probability on the coin being weighted or not. Okay. Yeah, I see. exactly. Right. Yeah. They will, like a p-value of the coin being weighted is the probability of seeing the data mm-hmm. or a more extreme draw of the data mm-hmm. given that the coin is or isn't weighted. Yeah. It's not the probability that the coin is or isn't weighted. Yeah. That's yeah. a Bayesian object, mm-hmm. but you need this other extra sample information that makes it's more complicated. It's a richer kind right. of space. It's a bit more difficult to execute. Okay, that's interesting because, I mean, so you mentioned p-values a lot and obviously we use heaps of p-values in science. Um, but it seems to me like Bayesianism conforms more to, like, Popperian scientific method and certainly to this notion that you, like, start with a theory and you're kind of like, well, what I expect to see is blah. That's your prior. Mm. And then you take that to your empirical tests and then see what comes out on yeah. the basis of that you update your prior. That's Is right. That, okay. Yeah, that's right. But actually, can you... So uh, 
I feel like as an economist, we never get much of a crash course in mm. like uh, history of science and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you could offer like both your listeners and me like uh-huh. a very brief reminder, because I like this is something you hear about, but it's like if you ask me to define like Papirian kind of mm-hmm. notion of science, I would not be able to give you a succinct answer. Uh, right. So okay. If you could give me one, that would be awesome. Yeah. Well, so based on my like limited undergraduate learning of these things. Um, Um, Hell yeah. Hell yes. So Popper, as I understand it, is motivated principally by the problem of induction, which comes to us from Hume. So it's this idea that if you you observe a phenomena over and over again, um, you don't know whether that's, um, like, certain to happen again or whether you just haven't observed enough of the sample. So the classic example is white swans and black swans. So Europeans for centuries only ever saw white swans. Right. So on the basis of, like, your Bayesian inferences, mm-hmm. you'd be like, well, I expect swans to be white. There's mm-hmm. another swan. It's white. Yeah. Um, and, and so you're really expecting all swans to be white. But it turns out that you just haven't witnessed enough of your empirical sample. Mm-hmm. So when you travel to Australia, you come across a black swan and your mind is blown yeah, and you yeah. have to update your whole theory about swans. <laughs> And so Popper's argument, uh, or the problem of induction, is that uh, essentially we, we can never get at objective truth. Mm-hmm. So you can you can start in a mathematical space uh, and posit axioms and then derive uh, proofs on the basis of those axioms. Mm-hmm. But what you've done there is derived proofs about an abstract mathematical space. Mm-hmm. So in order to bring that into reality, you're going to need to test that against some empirical data. Mm. Um, alternatively, you can base your axioms on empirical data, mm-hmm. but then you're already in the realm of empirics. So yeah. you're already in a statistical realm um, and a probabilistic mm. realm. Um, so, so you have to solve this problem of induction in order to think about, like, how do we generate knowledge? Mm. And so Popper's kind of solution to this, because in a sense he, like, sidesteps it, is to say, well, we shouldn't think about confirming things. Because you can't do that. Mm. There's always a possibility that... Uh, so the other classic example in philosophy is Gru. So Gru is a colour that is green, or an object is Gru, mm-hmm. and that's its colour. And it is green until a certain point in time, oh, yeah. at which point it will become blue. Sure. Yeah, and so it's similar to the swans, like you never know whether just you're not up to that point yeah, in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the... In, in abstract conceptual thinking, you can never sort of get away from this problem of induction. And so Popper says, well, what we should do instead is falsification. So, mm-hmm. And we shouldn't think about truth, we should think about facts. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I keep seeing swans and they're always white, mm-hmm. then uh, I can, on the basis of these rigorous tests, like I've, I've really subjected the phenomenon that I'm interested in to, like, controlled experiments where I've gotten mm-hmm. rid of all the variation and, and I've, like really pulled this lever and I know exactly mm. what effect that had and every time this the same thing happens mm. and now I'm, I'm pretty confident on the basis of these rigorous tests and ideally multiple tests of different varieties that uh, we understand this phenomenon then I can treat it as a fact mm, okay. not a truth facts are meaningless you can use facts to prove anything that's even remotely true and then you're still in this kind of Bayesian thing where possibly down the road um, new things will come to light and mm. all of a sudden you'll have to dispense with mm. what you thought before. And, and I guess the classic um, case study of that is is the quantum revolution in physics. Okay. So Newtonian physics was was a real um, 
poster child for controlled experiments. Right, right, right. Identified these fundamental forces and whatever, and we seem to be able to predict the motions of planets with a lot of precision, and it was all going really well. And then Einstein came along and the others came along and were like, actually, there's a whole bunch of weird shit going on that we can't explain. Um, and now you realize that your your theory just is missing bits. Mm. And so it no longer has the explanatory power that it had before. Mm. And now you need to update it. Mm. Okay. So I think this is really interesting. So I would say, like, there is, like, an interesting inroad into the Bayes frequentist issue here. Mm-hmm. And that has to do, and I only know about this as, like, a statistical issue. Um, but it has to do with, like, events that you've never seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to some extent, this is a case where um, the more crucial input is, like, what we call the model space. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, like, if you're saying ex ante, like, what color are swans? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, like, what color, like, what's the probability that a swan is white? Um, so... You know, it matters what the model is. So, like, do you have a model that allows swans to be anything other than white? Mm-hmm. So, let's since you're asking the question, what's the probability that a swan is white? Yeah. Let's agree there should be a model where yeah. it could be non-white. So, let's say, like, okay, there's another option. It's either white or it's not white. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, those are the two options. So, if you are a Bayesian, mm-hmm. you need to have a prior probability before you see any swans. Um whether they're white or non-white mm-hmm. and so you could say like i mean people were asking all the time and this is the issue like how what should the prior be no one knows but like what we do know in, in any generic case we don't mm-hmm. know what it should be but we do know that there shouldn't be a zero prior probability of any mm-hmm. option in the model space so okay. there should be a non-zero chance yeah. um you're not allowed to have what's called a dogmatic prior that puts mm-hmm. all of the probability mass on one option okay uh, so formally speaking, like all the theorems about Bayesian inference mm-hmm. converging to the truth um, work as long as the prior is not dogmatic. Okay. So the prior needs to cover the model space. Mm-hmm. So if we're asking the question, what's the probability that swans are white? You need to have some probability that there's some non-white swans in the prior. Yeah, sure. In order for that to work as a model. So let's suppose that it's been 200 years and we're in Europe and we've only ever seen white swans. Mm-hmm. So um, a Bayesian probability that swans are white is going to be very close to one but it won't be one yeah sure because you have this prior probability sitting on no there's Mm -hmm. some non-white swans and that will be degrading over time as you see more and more white swans but it won't be going to zero it won't Mm -hmm. be zero on the other hand the frequentist estimator of the probability that swans are white is one yeah. Because it's the frequency of white swans mm-hmm. as a uh, over the no, total swans, which is 100%. Yeah. So uh, this is one nice thing about Bayesian inference, which is that like if you have a model mm-hmm. that corresponds to asking the question, what's the probability swans are white? Mm-hmm. You have to have probability measure on the possibility that there's some non-white swans, even if you've never seen them. Mm-hmm. So you will not go to that edge and say, I'm sure there's no white swans right. because of how the, the kind of framework of the model is set up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the frequent, the naive frequentist estimator is just, it's 100%. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Right. And so, so you said that you think over the last, say, 50 years or so, especially there's been um, a growing kind of return of the Bayesian way of thinking to social science in part driven by computational power, yeah. which I think has generally brought statistics into social science yeah. with, with an intense, growing intensity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I, I was also thinking about in terms of the history of statistics in social science, um, just uh, the way it's applied. So I, I, we're going to talk a lot about causal inference in this podcast. Um, it does seem to me like the intensity of causal inference in research at the moment is kind of unprecedented. That if you if you take the clock back twenty years ago, maybe people were still claiming causation. They were still talking about their results mm. as though they had causation. Mm. But uh, actually, the methods that we were applying were not causal methods. Mm. So, do you see any kind of historical currents in how that's changed, at least in economics? Yeah, I think for sure. So, I think like in economics before like the eighties, mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of you know, it was more like sort of model-based inference. So we'd have like a model of how we think the economy works mm-hmm. and then we would like try to match some moments to it or like fit it to some data from the macroeconomy or from, mm-hmm. you know, the factory you were studying or whatever. We studied traffic patterns and found that drivers move the fastest through yellow lights. So now we just have the red and yellow lights. <laughs> Yay. Stay yellow, stay yellow! Um, and that was kind of interesting and and you know there was this desire to get to something similar to an experiment like what fisher you know was doing with agricultural plants or whatever there was this because we were using methods Mm -hmm. that were really designed for those situations and we wanted to understand i think like you know economists wanted to be more scientific i think that was a kind Mm -hmm. of feeling that we had and then there was this paper by lalonde uh in the 80s i think it was only one actually but i'm not i love all these historical stats paper not totally (laughs) sure so basically he actually managed to get his hands on some actual experimental data in economics okay and then he said what if we'd applied all these methods that people have been using Mm -hmm. claiming that they're getting causal or as good as experimental evidence and what would they what answers would they give us and how good Mm -hmm. would they be Right. And basically, so things like differences and differences, instrumental variables, whatever. Mm-hmm. And basically, they all did terribly badly. Right. So yeah. I think that kind of kickstarted people thinking like, oh, if we want to know like what the actual causal impact of changing this one thing is, mm-hmm. we have no alternative but to go in there and randomly change it. Yeah. Okay. So I think that led people to, you know, to, to wanting to do that because there was this knowledge of how big the gap could be between mm-hmm. what you think of as a sensible approximation to that okay. experiment yeah, yeah. and the actual experiment itself. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to expect that in a young discipline, like economics is a mm-hmm. relatively young academic discipline, yeah, yeah. Uh, relative to like physics or biology or whatever. Yeah, it's always annoying to me when like people in the media are like, well, how come economists didn't predict blood? Yeah. <laughs> Bro, we've been around like three seconds. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, it's like 250 so. years yeah. or something that this has yeah, been a formal best. study at yeah. best, at yeah. most. Like, yeah. So it's like, you know, you can't, I mean, what were the physicists doing 250 yeah. years into physics? Like, oh, I think the rock likes to be on the ground. Like, yeah. you know, that's like. Oh, gravity. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. No, exactly. So, like, we're definitely yeah. pre that. Um, and so I think what was exciting was like, oh, but if we do an experiment, then mm. we're kind of like biologists or doctors yeah um and we can actually do like you know there seems to be possible to do these randomized mm-hmm. experiments and and you can actually see the impact of like just like in a drug trial mm-hmm. um you know the notion is like why well, could randomly give 
50 people, you know, a scholarship to go to primary school in Ghana, just like I could randomly give them aspirin for their headache and Mm -hmm. I could like see what happens. Yeah. Um, And so I think that was very exciting to people Mm -hmm. because it was just Mm -hmm. like we were never close to anything like that before. It just was so cool to think you could actually get a fact like that, Mm -hmm. right? In that sense of like, you know, I actually could find out. That's so exciting. But I think, you know, economics and social science in general, we always have this like, uh, searching for our keys in the lamplight problem where sure. like you know you're like it doesn't matter where you dropped your keys in the dark you're searching where the light is uh, uh-huh. do you know this do you know this no I story? don't but okay. I like it so it's, it's like, so it's like a drunk man stumbling home mm. and you come across this guy and he's like peering into this like pool of street light yeah uh, and you come up to him and you say what are you doing he says I'm looking for my keys and yeah. you say well um, where did you drop them? And he says, oh, I dropped them down back down the street. And yeah, you say, right. well, why aren't you looking there? And he said, well, this is where the light is. Yeah. Uh, sure, so sure. I'm looking here because this is where the light is. So I think that's what happened to some extent mm-hmm. in – that's what causal – at this point, there's like we can answer a limited range of questions really, really well mm-hmm. using this methodology. And that's really exciting because, like, there used to be no light at all. Yeah. So now we have, like, this one street light that's over here. Mm-hmm. And that's really valuable. Like, I don't, I think it's like, it's a problem that people want to denigrate that because Mm -hmm. it is really exciting. Like, it just, nothing beats knowing. Like, you know, there is something here. Like, cool. Um, On the other hand, what you should not do is get confused about what you've learned. Yeah. Right? Like, you're asking a very limited question in a very specific context. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you want to extrapolate that knowledge to something broader, Mm -hmm. you just won't be able, like, you're just going to need a different approach. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if you're trying to understand something like, um, you know, why is it, for example, that uh, the birth rate in sub-Saharan Africa is still extremely high? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's fallen off in other places that have had, you know, comparable economic patterns. Mm. Why is the birth rate in sub-Saharan Africa still very high? Um, that's not a question that you can answer no. in a randomized trial. Right, so I actually have uh, an ex-PhD student, Celine Zipfel, uh, who's now incoming faculty at uh, Stockholm School of Economics. Cool. And, you know, she wanted to answer this question. And I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure now on young economists mm. not to answer questions like that because you can't study them with an instrument or with a randomized trial, which would really be the best. And yet, at the same time, we need to do our best to understand why it is that there's this high birth rate in sub-Saharan Africa, and mm. you're going to need a different set of methods. Uh, and, you know, I was pointing her more towards this sort of methodology that they have in political science, which is more mm. Bayesian, which is more based on these, like, um, you know, models of what the world could be, or, like, different kind of theories of what could be happening, mm-hmm. and then going in and really checking the patterns in the data in the world. Mm. Uh, okay, if this theory is what's happening, we should see this correlation between these two variables. Let's go and right. check that. If it's this other theory, we should see this correlation between these other two variables. Mm-hmm. Let's go and check that. Once you rule out the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. That kind of like investigative data sleuthing is, you know, an incredible asset. It's, mm-hmm. a, you know, and yet we don't really teach it formally, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not really valued at the moment. But I think it will come back because there's just a limit to how much you can learn in mm-hmm. randomized trials. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a lot. So that sounds, what you just described to me sounds a lot like sort of preparing falsification. So you are Mm. adjudicating between competing hypotheses. You've sat in the armchair, you've had a good think about it. Like, well, it could be this, 
could be this, could be this. Mm. So I'm going to set up some sort of, um, not an experiment, an experiment mm. would be ideal, but as you said, it's just not feasible in some cases, but I'm going to set up um, tests yeah. that will help me to adjudicate between these hypotheses. And then if the data really points overwhelmingly in one direction, I can't be certain that no. that confirms my theory, yeah. but I can falsify these other theories. I can be like, well, yeah. they don't have any support, so I can probably ditch those. Maybe they'll come back later in some other format. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, certainly one of my grievances with economics at the moment, and I, it's interesting that you mentioned Pulsite because I feel like they're very much following economics down this causal inference pathway, um, is that that... Um, approach to knowledge building has sort of been lost. So I, 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 as an anecdote, I remember Angus Deacon's always banging on about this because mm. he's not a fan of, of randomised controlled mm. trials or he, at least yeah. he thinks they're a bit um, over-egged. Um, and he was making the point that you can learn a lot in a scientific sense from just cross-tabs, like just mm. sort of yeah. getting summary statistics and being like, well, it's not this because that mm. doesn't make any sense. And, I, and someone... Um, put a tweet up on this saying, oh, well, forgive me, but I prefer um, my knowledge to be driven by science. Oh, and what they meant was randomised control trials. trials. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they had a PhD from a very, very top school. Yeah. Um, and I was like, this feels to me like a failure of education about what science is. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think there's like a, you know... Yeah, it is just a failure of education or, like, an over-identification with, like, medicine, mm. for example. But even medicine, like, struggles to deal with the fact that, like, the human body and also human societies are, like, complicated interlocking mm. systems. Yeah, epidemiology. Like, like. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's very complicated. Like, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be able to get the whole puzzle mm. from things that you could get from an experiment. Like, so, I, you know, I'm not as pessimistic as Deaton like I obviously share some of his concerns because mm. a lot of my work is about like quantifying the limitations of randomized trials but like mm. actually when we go in and look at it like a lot of these results are quite generalizable mm. um you know that's just one question right that's not the same question as like okay well why you know did credit access have this or that effect in mm. certain regions that's a different question you know um, and you would need a bigger machinery and a different type of modeling kind mm. of approach but, like, we're going to have to, I think, develop a new uh, kind of approach to inference for mm -hmm. social science because nothing on the shelf at the moment is going to cut it. Like, we need a mm -hmm. way to stitch together, um, like, these really well-identified causal effects from experiments with cross-tabs from the actual mm -hmm. world that we live in. Because, yeah. like, at the end of the day, what you want to, like, what you're about to do is go and make a policy at a country level, probably. Yeah. You know, and that occurs in a context that you need to understand. And so you have to bring those two things together. Mm -hmm. We don't have a methodology for doing that. Um, right. You know, there's these micro-founded micro, micro people, and mm -hmm. they're working towards that. But a lot of what they do is calibration, yeah. which is not estimation. Mm. Right? So that's calibration is like, I took a number from somewhere and I stuck it into the model. They don't even put the confidence interval in. Yeah, right. So... Why don't they do that? Because it's very difficult. Mm. Uh, it's very difficult to do. We don't have a standard methodology to do yeah. it. 
I personally think that a Bayesian methodology is a very natural and promising way to do it, mm. but like it would take me years to develop yeah. a methodology like that, and I'm working on like other things. Yeah. Like, and meanwhile, macro is changing. Yeah. So fast, right? Like yeah. decade to decade, the exactly. macro economy looks completely different to the way it looked a decade earlier. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is like yeah. I think it's good to have these sorts of discussions, um, but like. It, yeah like we're just so far from where we could be like we have to take that i think approach of saying you know we really need to try a bunch of new stuff Mm. like you know it's very likely that what we're doing now is nowhere near the best that we could do Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we need to be like willing to get very creative about like how we could go forward yeah all right well let's um let's maybe then speculate wildly about um how we might stitch the social sciences together yeah i think that's really (laughs) interesting topic so i spend a lot of time reading psychology um and it's been interesting watching they have an excellent journal that i really think economics should try to copy called perspectives on psychological science which is includes a lot of papers just written by psychologists on the process of psychological science mm-hmm. but it also invites a lot of commentary from outside the discipline mm-hmm. on it and i just really feel like economics could use a lot of commentary from outside the discipline. Yeah, I agree. And it's quite a prestigious journal, so they can be afforded to be quite selective. So mm-hmm. you don't just get, like, people calling out the neoliberalism of economics yeah, or whatever, whatever. trash is um, kind of being <laughs> talked about it. Um, so, yeah, in Perspectives, they recently just had a, a – I think it was the most recent issue on the theory crisis in psychology. Oh, yeah? Cool. Um, so talking about how, how – um, a lot of theory is really just the restatement of empirical regularities yeah. as opposed to actual theory. And then uh, in other recent issues, they've had kind of the opposite, like mm. sort of problems with um, kind of not having good enough statistical models. There's a lot of um, interesting work coming out about the need for psychologists to get more comfortable with the kind of quasi-experimental work that economists do mm. because I think an interesting kind of... Um, Contrast to economics is that psychology has proceeded mostly in the laboratory, I mean, mm. with human subjects, but still mm. everything in experimental conditions. Mm. And now, particularly in social science psychology, they're realizing that, as you say, you know, all these things are embedded in complex social systems, mm. and so you can't study it in the lab. You have no. to take it to real-world data, yeah. but then you run into all the problems that economics is yeah, really familiar yeah, yeah. with. But you know what's really interesting is, like, this problem is not even limited to social science. Mm. So, like, um, if you think about studying bacteria in a Petri dish, Mm. like, bacteria, like, we don't live in a Petri dish. So the bacteria that we encounter is actually actually quite different. Uh, The distribution of the types of bacteria that we encounter in the world Mm -hmm. is substantially different to the bacteria that you can grow in a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Uh, there are actually like biologists working on this and developing like soil-based mediums for studying bacteria. Yeah, right. And they've already discovered just like huge amounts of additional like new types of bacteria that we haven't mm-hmm. been studying, and like this has implications for like antibiotic resistance, yeah. stuff like that. So this is a problem that affects everybody. Like you know, you're you're able to study things in a way that you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then you learn more things about the stuff that you know Mm -hmm. um but like the way that you're studying things necessarily includes or excludes certain realities Mm -hmm. and you have to be very careful not to confuse like what you're what you're studying Mm -hmm. with the entire reality around you and i think also like i you know i as 
I think it's really important to be able to establish like what we would think of as quote unquote reduced form facts about the world. Mm-hmm. So just things about like what is the correlation between variables in the world. Like, you know, those are super important. Mm. But you need to, I think, always be mindful of the fact that like, you know, even just conceiving of variables and measuring them mm. proceeds on the basis of a theory about what yeah. the things are. Like defining stuff. Mm-hmm. embeds an understanding of the stuff yeah. it's not like you just get definitions from nowhere like definitions mm-hmm. of variables that we're studying are created by us mm. and like those definitions embed theories about how the world works yeah um and like when we lose sight of that we start to get stupid about like what we actually learn so like mm-hmm. this comes up all the time in economics and you would think that it couldn't right so you would think that like you know Profit, like you'd think, oh, that's just profit is just what it is. Actually, profit is like defined in a certain way. Mm. There's lots of different ways to define it, yeah. and this makes huge differences in how you understand what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, moreover, if you want to like understand or study it, like there's all sorts of like weird things that seem like weird statistical problems when you're dealing with profit data mm-hmm. that are actually like extremely obvious. Uh, indicators of an underlying economic reality mm-hmm. if you remember to like switch your economics brain on use your head yeah right so like when i was studying the microcredit like profit data uh i was trying to apply like a method from like a very general method uh, uh that's based on quantile regression mm-hmm. to these these outcomes and like just every time i would try to run this model the computer would just give me an error Right. Okay. So I was yeah. like, I don't really understand what's going on. Uh, I'm like, oh, I must have a bug looking mm-hmm. through it, looking through it. Eventually, I did what I had always been told to do by my stats professors, never by my economist professors yeah. or econometrician professors. My stats professors, um, in particular, Joe Blitzstein, who teaches Stat 211 uh, at Harvard, who's incredible. Yeah. He always said, like, the first thing you should do is make a histogram of the data, like graph yeah. the data. Yeah, my, so I learned yeah. uh, econometrics first from Trevor Bloch of the Bloch-Pagan test. Oh, yes. And he also, like, very first tutorial was, like, you should always start by scatter plotting your yeah. data. And if the relationship is not there, it's not there. <laughs> um, yeah, he was always like visualize, visualize, visualize. Yeah. Right. So like if you make a histogram of this profit mm. data, you can see why the quantile regression doesn't work because there's a big spike of people at zero. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you're immediately taught to think like, oh, that's some kind of problem with the data but actually if you think about how the data was sampled and how mm-hmm. profit is defined like we're sampling people in villages actually yeah. not all these people operate businesses mm-hmm. so if they don't operate a business they make zero profit by definition yeah. so there's like lots of people there that are not operating businesses mm-hmm. this big spike of people so yeah that means formally you can't use that stats method but that mm-hmm. is telling you something yeah about the economy and actually you could like build a model a stats mm-hmm. model that would like help you learn about like oh people moving in and out of the spike of zero mm-hmm. you know if i change something does that spike get bigger or smaller mm-hmm. that's a separate question to is there more on the positive is there more on the negative side of the people who are not in the spike yeah right so but it's you know knowing about that you have to know a little bit about how like people in rural developing village economies work how they live mm-hmm. you have to like someone at some point has to go there and talk to them and see them and mm-hmm. you know if you don't have that knowledge you can't do the stats like you won't yeah. understand why the formal stats is failing okay uh, so i think it's like it's all tied together yeah, uh, yeah so we've raised so many um things that we need to talk about here so you just mentioned like we need to go there and talk to them so yeah. that sounds kind of like you know a bit qualitative <laughs> um, I, I think that there is a, a kind of 
groundswell or a somewhat of an upwelling of interest, I think, in, in um, high-level economics, particularly in development economics, to do more kind of mixed methods stuff involving qualitative research. And before, when you were talking about these um, soil-based bacterial models, that really reminded me a lot of complex systems theory, mm-hmm. which is one of the spaces where randomized controlled trials just really break down, but also where probabilities like crazy hard yeah um and i remember a really good talk by someone at brookings when i was there on um using complex systems theory and agent-based models to look at the kind of social determinants of obesity okay and they they build a model where people have very simple behaviors around um eating and Mm -hmm. consumption and then they created a geographic space in the model for um, where food shops were and mm-hmm. food deserts and this kind of thing. And then you just, like, change the parameters and run simulations mm. and kind of look at what's going on. Mm. Uh, and that allows you to get uh, some sense for what's happening and to test your theories, but you're mm. not using a, a randomized space. Um, so I guess one way to let me put this, try to put this back to you as a question. So... Um, in terms of like how we should think about what is good research in economics. So like mm. at the moment, I think there's a strong emphasis on good research is randomized controlled trials or yeah. at least something that approximates that. Yeah, approximates that. Um, and also ideally answers a pretty interesting question. But I think we, we put a very strong emphasis on identification at the mm. moment. So if we think that that's a bit too um, heavily weighted in one mm. direction, and we wanted to promote a diversity of good research. Mm. What do you think are some of the markers of good research in terms of yeah. stats, in terms of methodology? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so it's very, I mean, yeah, it's. I think that good research starts with, like, a question that you can actually care about. Who cares? Yeah. Like, I think that is, like, a, a bar that a lot of research projects <laughs> don't clear. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, like, you know, there's just, and you have to start with, like, why would you care about this thing? Mm-hmm. Like, why do you want, and, like, you know, I think it's almost, and now it's almost, like, identical to just say, like, good research is grounded in, like, an understanding of the world that you're in, mm-hmm. or, like, a, a curiosity, let's say, not understanding, a curiosity about the world you're actually in, mm-hmm. not a curiosity about the literature that you're yeah. in. Yeah, like, well said, yeah. <laughs> like, that is, I think, you know, you have to be looking out the window mm-hmm. and saying, like, why is it like that? Uh, and, like, we're so far in social science from understanding why mm-hmm. what's outside the window is like that. Like, I'll leave it to the psychologist to tell me why what's inside the window of my house is like that. But, like, you know, it's my job to tell you what's outside the window. Why is it like that? You know, just anything. Just, like, you know, based on that curiosity, I think, is the first thing. And then I think you want to say, you know, once I've got a question that I could actually care about, what is a way of getting traction on this question that I could actually believe? Mm Mm-hmm. So I think, like, there's too much reliance on, like, oh, well, in Green's textbook, he says that multivariate regression has these properties, so I'll have to use, you know, multivariate regression. Or, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the law of large numbers says this, the central limit theorem says that, therefore, you know, and it's like, okay, but these are all, like, theorems about behavior variables that are proven in, like, mathematical structures. They're Mm -hmm. not... These are not like they it's very unclear what resemblance those things bear to mm-hmm. the actual world that you're in most of the time. So instead of thinking about what methodology is like approved by the people in your profession, mm-hmm. you need to think like 
one methodology would allow me to like actually learn something about this question that yeah. I care about. Like, you know, what information would I need to know? What kind of problems would I be confronting if I was trying to do this inference? Like, mm-hmm. and I think those are kind of the major ingredients. Like when I'm advising students or when I'm thinking about my own work mm-hmm. or reviewing papers or whatever, I'm like, is this a question I could actually care about? Yeah. And is this like, do I actually believe that this method is delivering me any kind of new information about mm-hmm. this question that's relevant to this question? Yeah. I think that's kind of what I think of as good research. Mm-hmm. And then once you've done that, not to like oversell what you found or yeah. try to pull kind of a, you know, extrapolate beyond what you could actually get. Mm-hmm. That is, we do have like a bit of an issue with that, I think, in economics because mm-hmm. we've been getting away with it. Holy Heidelberg, what'd you do that for? I'm afraid we've been drug dropping. I guess you could never trust a woman. You made a hasty generalization, Robin. It's a bad habit to get into. So that's what I think of as good research. And a lot of that good research, like, you know, is, um, you know, correlational or just understanding, like, what is the value of this statistic in the, mm-hmm. you know, like, if you think about, like, a lot of my work is just, like, what is the variation mm-hmm. in these parameters? Like, how much do they vary? Yeah. That's not, like, a quote-unquote, like, causal question. It's not a causal mm-hmm. question. It's just an empirical, regu- like, what is the variation that mm-hmm. we see? But it's very important. You can't really interpret the causal effects or extrapolate them in any way mm-hmm. until you know that variation. And yeah. similarly, like, you until you cross-tab mm-hmm. the actual, you know, variables in the economy you don't know how to make sense of the partial effect that you measured in your experiment yeah so i think that's i think it kind of goes together that way Mm -hmm. yeah no i'm very sympathetic to everything you just said and i particularly like this idea that like if you start with questions that matter then in a sense there's a a rebalancing and i don't think you want to overweight this but a balancing towards like well I may have a relatively crude model Mm. um, or I may have a relatively crude method or a measurement instrument or whatever Mm. it might be, but at least I'm asking a question that matters. And we're going to make progress on questions that matter and that's going to be incremental because those questions are really hard, um, but at least they're important. Um, And I do think that ultimately science is pretty well balanced, Um, but sometimes I do worry that we... We put too much effort on on really good answers to really kind of quite boring questions. Mm. Um, And we relegate ultimately quite big steps forward on hard questions to Mm. modest journals because they're not sort of bulletproof answers. Mm. So maybe to finish off, because I think we've been talking a while, um, but it's been a, a riveting conversation. Do you, what do you do? You think that there's anything um, institutionally within the way research is is structured that could be reformed to improve these kind of things without getting into like open science and that sort of stuff? Mm. But just like um, yeah, anything like on that front. Yeah. So I actually have not spent a lot of time thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Just just because it's like. I don't have at this point the power to to do any of those reforms. Like, you know, the only lever that I have, because I think that people, you know, should do more aggregation and evidence synthesis Mm -hmm. work, which is the kind of work that I do, because that's what I think we need more of. Like, my only lever to get people to do that is to, Mm -hmm. like, 
try to convince people that it's mm. interesting. So I think in terms of like um, getting people to focus on big, important questions rather than incremental, you know, small questions that are not that interesting. Um, I don't know. Like, I guess the only thing that I have thought of along these lines, and I think editors of journals are starting to think about this too, mm-hmm. is that, like, it it means that as a referee or as an editor, you have to start, like, reweighting mm-hmm. what you're what you think of as like worthier publication yeah um and like i'm not like i certainly think that you know you there need to be standards it's not that there's any it's not that any old opinion about mm. a hard question is worth publishing yeah absolutely not. absolutely yeah. not like you know that's the point of peer review but mm-hmm. it's like you know you you don't i mean yeah i think you want to create a kind of culture where there's value explicitly placed on like trying to take kind of big swings Mm. i think economics is actually better than many other disciplines Mm -hmm. um because we prioritize relatively few big papers Mm -hmm. um and that leads you a little bit more to say i'm going to take a big swing at a big question Mm -hmm. um and you don't need to publish a lot yeah like i've always been embarrassed when academics and other fields ask me how many papers i write in a year it's like one if i'm lucky yeah uh two is like a a a monster yeah (laughs) like oh then i need a holiday like big time um and i think that is good and i think that's you know that's a good Mm. thing about economics like i don't know broadly speaking in terms of incentives the the thing that i've bumped up against is like research grants and funders Mm -hmm. are quite conservative they want to be able to you know justify what they're spending Mm -hmm. money on Uh, yeah they kind of want to see the output when you pitch exactly yeah Yeah. and so that makes it hard uh, to take a big swing so if i could like put like a prayer out into the universe type Mm -hmm. of thing i would say i would like it if there would be more research funding Mm -hmm. for bigger more complex thorny questions and i think there have been some like we saw like berkeley's initiative uh for transparency in the social sciences Mm -hmm. yale had their why rise um initiative um but so far there hasn't been a sustained source of funding Mm -hmm. year on year available for researchers that want to do you know methodological innovations tackling questions that you know like there's lots of funding for randomized trials mm-hmm. that's not to say like there's lots of competition for that funding as well yeah. but like every year there's like funding rounds for randomized mm-hmm. trials there is not funding rounds every year for mm-hmm. like evidence synthesis yeah sure. you know like we are watching it and it's like once every three or four years mm-hmm. somebody somewhere like settle which was a is a different imprint did one a couple of years ago. We were lucky enough to get one grant yeah, from right. there. Um, but otherwise, you're really in this wasteland where you're waiting for, like, bits to do one round, settle to do a round. Like, there's no mm-hmm. sustained research funding for it. Yeah, right. That makes it challenging. Um, and so, yeah, I wish that that was different um, because that, I think, would change a lot of things. But, you know, we're going to control that. Just yeah, control sure. what we do. That's great. So one, one idea I have that I just, I'd love to run by you yeah, quickly because yeah. you mentioned as well, like, Economics is really focused on papers. Yeah. Um, and I do sometimes worry that actually books would allow for some of these messier questions to be tackled in mm-hmm. a systematic way where 
each of your chapters is maybe a little bit flimsy. Like you did a big qualitative study, mm -hmm. you did your quantitative study, you did mm -hmm. a synthesis, and everything's kind of pointing in this way, and mm -hmm. you bring it together, and you're like, here's the book. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that's, that's feasible, or a book's always going to be a bit choppy? So... I, I mean, I don't know because like, we're so far from that in economics, mm -hmm. but I will say that I instinctively would push back against that uh -huh. because I think that papers in economics are too long. Yeah, uh, okay. So I don't want to give people more length. Mm -hmm. I think, and I, I would count my own papers also as being too long. Um, like, you know, we, like when you write long papers, like you're kind of wasting people's time. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> like it's unfortunate. Um, so I think... I mean, it is hard to distill things down mm -hmm. into very, very synthesized type. Yeah, especially you know. with our refereeing culture. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the referees are like constantly telling you to add stuff. And then mm -hmm. in the second round, they think of more stuff mm -hmm. that they didn't think of in the first round that they want you to add. Yeah. Um, and there's like no discipline at all. So I think that is pretty bad. But so no, I wouldn't. I, I don't think moving to books. I Although, again, let me bookend that with the caveat that we don't. We're so far from that, mm. but I, I feel it's hard to it's hard to evaluate that. So if moving to books meant longer, then no, I would not be in favor of mm -hmm. that. Um, but you know, I think it would be nice if we had somewhat more diversity of what was valued at the very top of the kind of publishing hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Like right now, like I routinely get asked, like, would you write us like um like a, a paper explaining how, about partial pooling methods. Mm -hmm. So partial pooling methods are like very related to what I've been doing. Um, like, you know, when you're not sure whether you should be combining evidence across settings because mm -hmm. maybe it's too different and yeah. you're wrong that it belongs together. But on the other hand, it might belong together. And if mm -hmm. it did, you could really learn a lot. So you don't want to pool it all together, but you don't want to leave it all separate. Mm -hmm. So there's a suite of methods for partial pooling. Exactly. Right. So yeah. there's like models that allow you to figure out mm -hmm. from the data, uh, obviously filtered through a structure, mm -hmm. where you draw that line. Cool. So very promising. Like it's related. I mean, it's been there for ages. This is what hierarchical models do in mm -hmm. Bayesian inference, but it's also part of machine learning, uh, certain machine learning methods. And people are thinking about this a lot. This is what's called shrinkage uh, in in statistical methods. So I routinely get asked, like, would you write, um, you know, like a primer or like how mm -hmm. to do that, um, or like you know, you know, because I've taken the time to kind of sift this, like, to digest that for myself. Yeah. And you know, it's like. I would love to do that. I would yeah. love to spend my time writing a primer like that. Um, there is no way I could publish something like yeah. that in a journal that would put me anywhere towards getting tenure. I might mm. as well write like, you know, a sequel to Blog Cat Post. Person yeah. or whatever. Like, yeah. Like it's just not. So I think that would be that would be nice if we had like more more okay. diversity. If it's like primers on like new methodologies mm -hmm. was seen as like a contribution because it actually would be yeah the same way that like if you write R packages and stuff yeah you get, everyone's using it everyone's you using it you're advancing it. science but yeah. it like you might as well have like gone and played golf for yeah. all the benefit will give you for tenure and that is fucked up mm. yeah so there we go now we've got something to rail against yeah okay yeah. wonderful <laughs> this has been a really great conversation rachel thanks so much for coming on Epistemology, I hope you had a good time. Yeah, I did. Thanks so much for having me. Epistemology.